This is the Common Sense Podcast presented by Tamar. I'm your host, Tamar Weinberg, founder and CEO of Tamar, and I'll be talking to people of all walks of life who have suffered adversity and overcome to rise above the ashes and now make self-care and wellness an absolute priority. Hi, everybody. Today, I am so, so honored, and it's such a privilege to have my somebody I've been admiring from afar, uh, Sasha Raskin. She is not too far from me, but we haven't met face-to-face yet. We've met online in the women's community. Uh, this is episode 42, and I, th- Sasha, thank you so, so much for joining. Yeah, thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, awesome, awesome. Tell, tell everybody, uh, where, give me, give me, what do you do? Where are you from? What do you, what, what's, your, what's your life like these days? Oh, okay. Um, well, I was born in Ukraine when it was the Soviet Union right before the collapse. So um, there's that, but I'm pretty far from there. I live in New York City right now. I'm in the East Village, which you probably know, and maybe a lot of other people do. Um, and now I run a mental health organization called The Beautiful Mess, and we do talks for talks and events to combat loneliness, depression, and mental health stigma. And yeah, I'm just trying to stay sane during the madness of pandemic life. And it's hard. We're, you know, let me, let me just disclose right now. It's October 20th. And I mean, full disclosure for myself, I feel like I might have it a second time. (laughs) That's really what we're going right now. This is like a crazy, it's a beautiful mess, I will say. (laughs) Uh, yeah, let me let me talk about let, let me get a little bit more about your history. So you were from the Ukraine. Tell me when did you come to America? Did, does that did do you feel like that? Uh, I mean, I'm sure it contributed to your story, but give me a little bit of background about like how you you know immigrated to the United States and 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 that story and maybe uh, any any challenges that you faced, hardships that you faced along the way. Yeah. Um. So I we left when I was a toddler, so I don't remember. I don't remember anything actually from the journey, but we did come as refugees to the U.S. There's an organization named HIAS. Um, I forget what it stands for. It's like Hebrew International Aid Society, something like that, and they helped Jews escape the former Soviet Union. So yeah, we were very fortunate to to get their help, and they essentially sponsored uh, Jews who were trying to get to the U.S. So. We lived in Europe. They moved us around Europe while while we were trying to get to the states. And um, yeah, but like I said, I, I don't remember the journey because I was I was too young. But that's probably for the best, as from what I hear, it was pretty it was pretty intense. Um, <laughs> at one point, um, my my I've obviously heard a lot of stories, and my whole family immigrated together, and we all lived in in one room uh, that was not exactly nice and there were a lot of pests and they said the rats were so big they had me they would like me to sleep on high surfaces because they were worried the the rats were like bigger than me (laughs) wow yeah so i'm very grateful to not remember that for sure yeah i you know it's interesting when i was a child i remember my mother uh being very involved in like soviet jury stuff I don't even oh. remember what she did, but I remember she had a lot of paperwork in her car 
And very, very instrumental on that. Like, I mean, obviously, things have changed in the last 20 years, and none of that's happening anymore. But, like, that was a big part of, like, what she was focused on. So I wonder if she was involved in any of that. I mean, this is in Florida. This was not in New York. But still, that being said, you know, there's a lot of that immigration, and I had seen it as well in school, like kids coming from from the Ukraine or Russia, whatever you would say, uh, politically correct. I don't know because borders are changing all the time. But, yeah, that was that – was, that was my life as a child as well. Like I experienced it from this side. Yeah, that's so interesting. Why Why was she involved? She just... I'm not even sure. It was just more of like, you know, this was a grassroots volunteer thing that she decided to take upon herself. And I just remember we, like, this was like in, in like I said, you know, South Florida. She We would go to like US1 and there would be this office and she'd pick up papers and she'd... I, I don't... I was so young. Like, I wish there was more concrete information that I could provide here because I just don't like what I just remember that she was she was instrumental in in that immigration. I think, you know, my my family is like, you know, very diverse. We come from like various parts of Europe. Um, My paternal side is Lithuanian, Polish and Hungarian. My maternal side is Russian and Polish. And my mother, I guess maybe it was my mother's side of the family. She's like, oh, you know, let me do it. It was never cousins that we were ever immigrating. I think at, by that point we were all there. But maybe it was like it came close to our heart that, you know, this is these are people who suffered like, you know, our previous generations. Let's let's help them get make a home here. Yeah. I mean, so maybe your mom was responsible for me being in the U.S. I don't know. I would have to ask her. I like I said, I have no idea what she was doing, but she was doing. There was always some paperwork, always somewhere, and she's like, "This Soviet jury and this Soviet." Like I just remember that phrase from my from my early, early, early childhood years. Maybe like five or six years old, and that was like what's going on. But yeah, yeah, possible. Yeah, yeah. Wow. I love I love um, I love stories like that. If that were the case, that'd be. Yeah, you know, I'm really. I do a lot of genetic genealogy and genealogy in general these days. And I mean, I'm sitting here and as I read and I learn about like people's stories of immigration, like I think it's I'm fascinated by it. Uh, you know, most people, when they do genetic genealogy and they use a site like Ancestry in particular and MyHeritage, those are the two sites that you pull up like records and then you just accept them blindly without like actually learning about the story and about the people who come. And I'm sitting here and I'm reading Passenger Manifest, like literally line by line. I want to know what they did for a living. I want to know who they left behind. I want to know where they're going. I want to put that address down. I want to know how many children they say they had given birth to and how many children are living. Like I try to really get a full picture of the individual. It, it ends up taking 13 times, like I, I'm just giving random number, but like probably about 13 times longer because I'm actually documenting it as I put it in there. Whereas somebody would just accept that hint, like they become these come up as hints, and they're like, "This is a this is a census entry from 1940," and for me, I don't accept that census entry. I sit there and I say, "You know, Isaac is living with his wife Sophie, and they have their children Lewis and Lester and Henry, and Henry is seven and he's in school and he is not working, and you know his the husband is like you know his his rent is twelve thousand dollars a year, like 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 really really." digging down to the nitty gritties of this stuff because I want like these store people to not just be like a picture on a you know on a or a name a word on a page I want to actually know the story behind their their arrival and what they're doing and the struggles that they had to go through to like put us bring us to where we are 
Um, yes. It's fascinating, but at the same time, I mean, like these are these are like you, you know they're difficult lives to like do this and to just imagine. I'm like I was just reading um, about I'm reading completely different, but like a different perspective uh, from Naval Ravikant. He owns Angelist, and he he like was talking about how his father he came to America. His father was like uh, trained as a pharmacist, but um, he I'm trying to see if I can find it. He um, he came to America and he didn't have, it was obviously, it wasn't transferable. So he ended up like working in, uh, forget like, you know, he, he worked in like blue collar services. Uh, it wasn't, it wasn't the, it wasn't the opportunity that he, he was able to, you know, he wasn't able to, to bring it to America. I mean, you know, it's basically, it's like starting over again and you're starting in a, in a, a lesser, lesser, I, I guess, I don't know. You're, it's, it's more of a struggle, um, when, when you immigrate cause it's just not, the education and the system is it's just all very different. Um, but yeah, let, let's talk about your story. Let's talk about like you and, and, and I mean, you know, where you are today. I mean, you, you have this amazing inspirational and educational organization. Tell me, tell me how that started. Oh yeah. So I started a beautiful mess for really personal reasons. I, was a high-functioning, high-achieving, suicidal depressive for most of my life. I um, I started college when I was 16 years old. I went to, you know, a top university and graduated with honors. I was an agent in Hollywood, and then I even ran a tech company briefly. But I was pretty um, I was pretty depressed the whole time. And like most of us, I learned to you know put on a, a good face. So there's a chance you wouldn't have even known that I was dealing with any of that. And, um, and then a few years back, I was, things really culminated and I ended up checking myself into psychiatric hospital and, um, it was something I needed cause I needed the support, but it was also just terrifying. I really thought that my life was over, um, that no one would want to love me or date me or marry me or even be my friend. And, um, and yeah, so I thought that if I if I want anything approaching a normal life, I have to have to keep this a secret and no one can find out. And um, that sort of instantaneously as I thought that, I decided, I just instinctively decided that I would tell everyone because um, I, I didn't want to lead a life of secrecy and shame and I, I didn't want to perpetuate the stigma of people silent. So I, yeah, I... I knew I, I was afraid that I would chicken out if I didn't do something drastic. Um, and so I I just wrote a note to as many people as I could. I was really lucky. I was in a, all, I was in a voluntary unit and um, even most voluntary units are pretty strict, but mine, we, mine was more liberal. We had um, access to, like, I was able to bring my computer and use it, which is very common for psychiatric facilities. But um, yeah, my first night in there, I just wrote a note to a ton of people. I think it was over 100, I'm not sure. And I, I told them, and then going forward, I just started telling everyone, first dates, parties. And I guess in, in retrospect, I shouldn't have been so surprised because it's, it's obvious now that everyone struggles. But at the time I was just blown away because so many people had similar stories and they ended up sharing them with me. And 
they often told me that I was the only person that knew outside of their emergency contact list. And I just thought that's the craziest thing. You know, we've, we've built a world where we, the people that we're closest to, we're scared to them know what's actually going on with us because there's just so much judgment and so much stigma and so much shame around this. And I thought, this is ridiculous and I have to change this. So yeah, that's really why I started A Beautiful Mess was to normalize conversations around the full experience of what it's like to be a human and be alive. Um, because, you know, obviously that includes happiness and joy, but it also includes a lot of pain and struggle and, and hurt. And I don't want people to feel... I think that we talk about unconditional love, but that's in in our reality that's so rarely ever actually felt or experienced. And so I don't want a space where like conditional on you showing your pretty side. That's why it's called beautiful mess. I believe the most beautiful things about us are ugly, messy bits and just showing up in our full honesty and that's that sometimes it's just really fucking hard to be a human you know um and i i don't want people to feel like they have nowhere to go and that's the case because i think too often we we feel like people only want us when we're when we're palatable to them um and that's a horrible feeling yeah yeah like when we're in one piece and i i totally hear you um it is true, though. It is true. I mean, like I relate to your your struggle as well. Um, you know, I'm no I'm no shy. I'm not shy about the fact that I suffered from uh, what I guess was postpartum depression. I'm not really sure, to be perfectly honest. But I really feel like there was when I started having children. While I loved having children, I lost I lost the joy of life. Uh, I enjoyed the child. It's it's very hard to articulate. Um, and as that progressed, eventually, like. I needed someone to like, I don't know the right word, but I would say like coddle me or care for me. And, and it wasn't until like my fourth child where I finally felt like there was somebody there that was mentally, not, not in my family, but um, there was an individual who kind of came into the fray and I felt like I can give them more than I was able to give to my children because I needed sort of like an emotional stimulation that I wasn't getting. And I became, it became a codependency. And eventually that codependency fell apart. It completely, completely fell apart because, you know, as, as you take advantage of, I guess, somebody who's already lacking, lacking in such a, uh, you know, who's already sort of broken, like eventually like it becomes even worse. So, you know, can only imagine if somebody's already depressed and then you like take that for granted, it, it, that's not sustainable. And I, I basically fell apart uh, and I hit my rock bottom and I wasn't like tweeting and I wasn't posting on social media for a very long time. And people were like, oh, you took a hiatus. Like, and like, I fake it. Like you said, like it wasn't noticeable. It's like something that you kind of like go up about your way and people think that like pe things are obnoxious to you, but, and you don't even have the recognizance yourself. You don't have the recognition that you're suffering until yeah. like you hit that rock bottom. And then all of a sudden you look back retroactively and like, oh my God, it was there. Yeah. And I mean, a lot of things are very 
the same thing. I, I used to have like 10 panic attacks a day, wake up in the middle of the night with my heart just racing, feeling like I was dying, covered in sweat. And I thought that was normal. I had no idea. I thought everyone lived that way and that I just sucked at doing it, you know? Yeah. Um, and that's why, again, the talking about it is so paramount because if if that's normal for you, you have no idea that you're going through something pretty severe and that you need help. And it's so important that we share more for that exact reason. Right. I started doing that, you know, in my context of like, you know, launching a perfume brand for self-care and self-love and self-acceptance, because that's, I feel like sense should be an inward journey and not an outward journey of uh, getting the external acceptance. Start feeling like you love yourself before that happens. You can be loved by everybody in the world, but unless you feel it yourself, um, unless you do it yourself, it's really, it, it's, it, it's moot. And I felt that way for a super long time. And I, and, and then I started like tweeting about it the same way like you were like, and that's why I felt like it's so relatable and so nice that we connected, um, that I was able to take my, also use my voice as a platform to start sharing things. And people are like, thank you for being so honest and raw and vulnerable publicly. That's yeah. not something that people do. And there's still a stigma around it. And yet, you know, like you see like celebrities, like I read people, I started, I, I read people magazine. Let me say, I don't do it so much anymore, but I used to read people magazine and like, I religiously followed it and people were very slow to express that they're flawed you, you know, people. And just to, just to think about like, it's not, we're human. It's human. It's a human trait of who we are. Don't be afraid of, of not being perfect. Yeah. I'm, or, or be afraid and do it anyway. You know, I mean, I think that's the other part of it is that there wasn't like, now I can talk about it comfortably, but initially I was, I was terrified. I was scared shitless. It was the last thing I wanted to do was tell people that the only thing that sounded worse was to not tell people and to, to keep it a secret. And so, and I think that's also a really big misnomer that people have is they're waiting for the right moment and they're waiting to not be scared or they're waiting to be stronger. They're waiting for some kind of mythical moment. And I think one of the most powerful things I've learned is sort of to, to do and act even when I'm not always ready and to trust that I will rise to the occasion and that I have that strength um, because you really, yeah, you don't know what you're capable of until you do it. And I, I don't know what it's like to not have fear, anxiety, but I'm just kind of making friends with it and deciding to show up anyway. Um, and I think that it's, it's kind of like one of the things that I talk about is, I think one of the one of the worst aspects of our society and I think it's hurting our relationships and everything is this <clears throat> this need to feel comfortable or or good it's like <clears throat> some of the most rewarding beautiful moments I would say not even some but most you know and I've brought up deeply uncomfortable topics with friends like ways our friendship wasn't working for me or was hurting me or my needs weren't met and that's such a scary thing for us um, because we're so scared of being abandoned and, and left. But the reward on the other side, you know, if that person meets you, the richness of that bond and that relationship is grows just like exponentially. And so, yeah, a big part of it is 
there may, you know, you, some of you may be able to get to a point where you are fearless or whatever, but for most of us, and certainly not me, you, just because you have the fear or the discomfort doesn't mean you don't, can't do it anyway. And, and these are, I feel like this is also frustrating because it's like in school, you know, we learn the quadratic formula and all this other crap that we're never going to use in our lives, but we don't learn that these are, these are skills, you know, you, you aren't just born able to figure it out and nobody teaches you how to have healthy conflict or have deep conversations or meaningful conversations or withstand discomfort. But, but these are teachable skills. These are things that you can learn. And that's why I create the spaces for it to, to be in our own discomfort. Um, I think it's just one of the most powerful tools ever. And I, I think it's why we avoid so many conversations that are critical to our growth and why we're stuck with, you know, issues like racism or sexism, you know, why people, you know, black people are on the streets because since the 60s, you know, some things have changed, but a lot haven't. And a lot of us, particularly white people, are not willing to have the discussions because we don't want to feel uncomfortable. At a certain point, it's kind of like, fuck comfortable, you know? <laughs> um, get, get uncomfortable and get okay with that. And, and you, you can be uncomfortable. It's not going to kill you. You know, one of the things that I feel like is incredibly empowering right now in being able to share the story and getting, getting this way is that people really come up to you. And like you said the same thing, like people started approaching you and saying, I'm not telling anybody about this story except for my emergency contacts. It lends itself and it communicates like you could be like, and I don't know if you want to, if you and I want to be this way, but I think we end up kind of adopting this like role of like therapists in people's lives because we're human and real enough to share that experience. Yeah. Um, and it be become all of a sudden this relatable slash approachable kind of being. Uh, and it's, it's a role that I never expected that I would have, but at the same time, like I'm, really in like excited about it because you know I want to be a support system without without having that dependency where I've been before I don't want to like latch on to that and it's hard because in relationships like I feel like I can find myself getting addicted to that desire to help in such a way yeah. that, that's what, like I've been depressed more than once in my life and I've had two very codependent relationships and those relationships in particular stems from a a longing to uh help somebody but once i started helping it like i became addicted to the help you know what i'm saying i just felt more and more and more um oh my god i love it i, I love the high it feels i love what i'm able to do to to these individuals but eventually like there's only so much you could give of yourself and eventually like you you it's like you're milked you're milked it's like completely it can't milk you dry, but they do. And, and that's, that was the end of those two. Those are my, like, I would say the worst things has ever happened to me, but maybe for, for the second time around, it was the best thing that happened to me because eventually I experienced what I was, was, you know, consider my regrowth and where I am today. If not for the fact that I hit that rock bottom. Um, but it's crazy because yeah, people have come up to me and like, they asked me for all of this advice and it's just like, I'm not any different than you. I'm the same as you. The only thing that's different is that I'm sharing my story. Yep, exactly. It's and, weird. And, 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 yeah, I mean, one of the things I, I talk about a lot is that, like, 
Yeah, because people do, they'll, they'll come up to me and be like, wow, you know, that's so amazing. You share that you transform the space and the level of dialogue just totally shifted and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, nobody like elected me president of the sharing club or the mental health club. It's like, I just made a choice to do it. And you have the same power to change every room that you walk into just by showing up really fully and sharing what's actually true and real in your heart and it's I think it's just funny because people act like it's, you know they're amazed when when I do it or when you do it or when somebody else does it but it never occurs to them that they have just as much power and ability to do that too there's nothing there's yeah just nobody appoints us <laughs> right you know on LinkedIn I take I, I I started using the hashtag human movement and my whole mentality and the mindset there is that we are all human and we have to stop conveying ourselves as professionals and convey ourselves as the whole whole person. I you love know? That. And yeah, it's it's just, you know, we we always are oh per- perfect. And now thanks I actually thank coronavirus for the fact that now we're seeing a person as a a family member, you know, like a, a person a family man, a family woman, like my husband you know, who's always at work and works really late and never sees his kids. Um, now he has his, he's working in the in my upstairs closet and we have a kid, for example, in quarantine right now who has to come up in the middle of his like business calls and you hear the kid, daddy, my Zoom's not working, you know, because if mommy can't do it, you know, like he comes to daddy. And like, thank God for that. Thank God for the human movement because like we have to, we have to stop at, like, pretending that we I mean yeah of course professionalism is there but we're people before we're professionals and I'd like to think that we can be family you know we we, we can be career oriented and also family oriented without the like one being exclusive of the other uh I mean I'm I'm a it's funny my my husband is more of a um a family man over a career oriented man but he's the one who's in the office more than me and I'm more of the career oriented person but I've been working from home since 2007 before I had kids it's such a weird dynamic and now like I'm just happy that our reality encompasses the you know our flaws and all and the fact that you know like it's time it's about it's high time that we like you know we show our our our, our offices of like us sitting at our computers and zoom in, in in our zoom meetings and kids sitting next to us in zoom school and you know, have that family photo, <laughs> like, forget about it, you know? Yeah. And I like to talk openly about, because I think the one thing that I will say, I don't have much social anxiety. And I don't have like, I know a lot of people speaking in public is utterly terrifying. And so, sometimes it definitely happens to me, but other times it doesn't at all. And I think that, like a lot of it, like, things if you take an outside look at me, especially on paper, you know, all the, all the, the bullshit achievements and stuff, it can seem like it's, it's easy for people and it's easy for me. And so I kind of open up my, my first workshop I ever ran, I totally was having a, a little meltdown and I thought, you know, I, I've so much of my life I had conditioning to kind of like be this trained monkey and to hide what I was actually feeling, um, to perform for others. <clears throat> and, um, and I thought, you know, I could, I could do this workshop and nobody would be like none the wiser that I'm really struggling through it. But then it, it sort of maintains this facade that, 
you know, there's the leaders and then there's us and they have something that we don't. And I think that's just, yeah, it's bullshit because we are the leaders. Every person that makes that choice is in that position. That's, that's all it is. And I also think that now, now is a time when we see our leadership failing us on so many levels and we kind of have to step into that ourselves and decide that we can't hand over the reins like we we're we're steering the ship and and yeah yeah 100 percent. i mean everybody can totally be the the voice of their own struggles and doing that will you know <laughs> and forgive me right now i have to i have one right now in the other room who's crying because something happened in his zoom class so give me one second i don't i don't even know if i want to edit this out because this is the reality of the situation but give me one second because i have this upset little boy well i totally i totally agree <laughs> Thanks. doesn't get more real than a tantrum in the middle of a i know it always happens right come here come here come here give me give me funny I teach a class called toddler temper tantrums for adults and um I can give you my four-year-old you can have him oh I'm sure uh, I'm sure but there's I mean the funny thing is there's a little four-year-old in all of us that's like begging for attention so I am um, I can relate to that <laughs> yeah yeah it's it's unfortunately I don't even know <laughs> this kid bought it but um, yeah, I'm, it's, it's how I feel as well every single day. Like, I mean, and this is like what, what, this is sort of like what, what lends itself to, you know, this, what we're suffering from, I think, um, that we, we felt like, like, I mean, I, I think, I think for me, my story, my, my depression has really kind of come from this place of childlike, you know, where have nature versus nurture like maybe that nurturing like when I was young I didn't have that ex experience to have that and like it has become it, like it, it's funny because I've, I've certainly and maybe maybe I'm wrong in, in this and I don't want to like I'm not I'm not blaming my parents they did they did great great work but like psych psychologically like you know it's always been a conversation as I've gone through my my years of therapy and my therapists have always kind of like pushed me in that direction of like maybe it was nurture maybe it was nurture and I'm just like Oh, I don't know. But here I are. Yeah, maybe I need to check out that temper tantrum thing because I feel like there is there was that lack. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I started when I was in the hospital, I started struggling very, very, very <clears throat> severely with abandonment issues for the first time ever. And I just couldn't figure out where it was coming from. I mean, it was so severe to the point where if a friend would go to the bathroom, I would kind of start hyperventilating and was afraid they were they just were sneaking out like the back window and I'd never see them again and and I and then of course I was so scared of telling them that because I didn't want to freak them out <laughs> so I kept that all to myself which of course made it worse but I couldn't figure out you know my, my parents are still married they still live in the house that I grew up in um everyone in my family there's divorce doesn't really exist in in my families like not my not my grandparents or uncles or cousins and yeah I mean I've had a, a steady upbringing in in a lot of ways um and so I just couldn't understand why would somebody like me have 
abandonment issues of of all things. And and I read a uh, I read an article that was talking about how, you know, so attenuation is when a your psychological needs are met and when somebody attenuates to you. So essentially like a parent responds appropriately to a child's needs. So if a child is is hurt or scared and the parent yells at the child or tells them, you know, that they're bad, that's a very poor, poorly attenuated response. And that emotional abandonment actually has the same effects on your brain and psychological development as actual real physical abandonment. And so it started to make a lot of sense because I think it's the same thing, you know, I, we, I, I know that, you know, my parents did their best and loved us, but certainly their emotional responses were not very attenuated. Um, I remember just even being in the hospital, I couldn't stop crying and my dad yelling at me to stop crying um, and saying that I would, if I didn't stop crying, I would stay, stay that way forever. And it's, it's just his own inability to, to deal with that. And, and watching his daughter in pain and wanting it to, to stop and he can't fix it. So, uh, you know, I, I understand that but at the same time, the, yeah, the, it's, it's fascinating because the, the effects are the same. And I think that often we really minimize emotional health, like, Oh, well, if you're not, if you're not, especially in like immigrant communities and, and refugee communities, there's, you know, this pick yourself up by your bootstraps sort of ethos, but, I can really leave people who are struggling and leave them very alienated and very alone. And, and so, you know, they're saying, we, we give you everything, we give you shelter, we give you this, but it's like, actually, if you're not meeting your child's emotional developmental needs, it's, it's as though you have abandoned them. And I'm, I'm terrified as a parent to think about the possibility that I might not be meeting my child's expectations. You probably are and that's just the reality. <laughs> yeah, I think all of us are because I had the same thing. Abandonment is exactly where I was and that's where I fell and that's why I collapsed because I was abandoned eventually by that individual who I became like very, I latched onto. Um, mm -hmm. And I mean, certainly I didn't want that to happen but that's just the nature of the beast and, and it was beastly. It was absolutely like probably one of the worst things that I've ever experienced in my life because mm -hmm. like I, I was so so gung-ho and so i was so i was so I, I really needed that at that point you know you know going through giving birth to, to to children and 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 then feeling like i couldn't you know my 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 needs as as somebody who who you, you, like you just don't like you could have external help but unless you have that emotional coddling it's it's that's it that's it for you and uh that that was that was ha what happened i i fell apart and I mean, and, and, and it was abandonment and, and I don't think I could provide the same thing to my, you know, my children. And um, now my kid right now is feeling like he's being abandoned and hence the mommy in the background. <laughs> that's just, that's life right now, you know, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, we, I, I'm not a parent, so I can't even, obviously there's limitations to anything I can understand about that. But at the same time, I imagine the hardest part of being a parent is knowing that in some way you'll probably fail your child. Um, I think the most you can do is just 
you know, acknowledge that pain. Um, I, th I, I think it's maybe, maybe it's not inevitable. I don't know, but I do think it's inevitable under our social paradigm where people are so under supported themselves. Like how, how the hell are you supposed to raise a child, work a full-time job, do the laundry, cook and clean, you know, drive your kid. I mean, it's just, we have, we don't have enough support structure for people whatsoever. And, um, and you know, like who's the person, like you said, who's the person coddling you, you have your own needs to be able to show up for your kids that way. And so, you know, that's where the self-compassion comes in and, you know, knowing you're doing your best, but you're, you're, you're not supported either. None of us are. And that's why I think, I didn't mean to turn this into like a, a, a revolutionary talk, but I think that's why our current system is so, it's so scary and, and insufficient because people, they're just exhausted and they feel like they're left to their own to, to, to fend for themselves. And, and it's, it's just utterly depleting. Yeah. 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 And then, wonder, and then we're like, and then we're like, why are people, why are people so depressed? I don't get it. <laughs> it's like, gee, I wonder, you know, it's not, it's not rocket science. It actually makes perfect sense. It really have, does. Yeah. We don't have community support. We don't have the infrastructure and, and then we're, we don't get it. why it's, it's just, it's baffling. A hundred percent, a hundred percent. And it's, 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 it's difficult because even with the community support, people do not feel like they can articulate the fact that the, the struggles they're going through because God forbid someone might flag them as, Oh my God, you need, you need help. Like yeah. as if we're not, I, I was reading yesterday, 31% of people up from like 10% of people are now suffering with mental health issues because of, you know, the coronavirus pandemic, you're not alone. And unfortunately, everybody I look at, I don't judge them. I don't think about them in like a way of, oh my God, somebody's going through some sort of mental health struggle. I'm sure they look at me as the person who came back from Twitter and all of a sudden had a massive depression. <laughs> I'm not any different than like, you know, right now, 31% of people, but it's not, it's a lot more than 31% of people. We all have basically our, our crap. We're all dealing with it. Yeah, I mean, even the 31% seem, first of all, I've actually heard higher statistics for sure, but also, even if it is 31%, like, statistics, that's still such total bullshit, because it's like, when I, when I say it, almost everyone responds with like, oh, yeah, I've had, I've struggled with mental health, too, and my response is always like, yeah, I mean, no offense, but if you said you didn't, I would think you were a liar, <laughs> like, it's like, I, I, I don't know anyone who hasn't struggled in some way, shape or form. It's just a question of if they're willing to be honest about it. Um, so yeah. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of social pressure to not be honest about it. And, and I think, you know, there's so many reasons not to share, but the amount of people who will totally be invalid, you know, go, like, oh, have you thought of making a gratitude list? It's like, no, gee, why didn't I think of that? I, <laughs> you know, it's, um, yeah, we really, we really love to oversimplify and, and soundbite and, um, but these are really complex issues that are not solved by a gratitude list. Right. Right. And there's a lot more you need to do. You need to own it, own up to it. You need to, uh, acknowledge that you're struggling. You need to not feel like you're, you know, you need to be identifiable. You need to relate, you know, you need to understand that you're not 
You're not alone, and there's there are there's support system. It doesn't have to be paid support. It could be camaraderie, people people who are going through the same thing all the time, and unfortunately for for most of us, it's it's not something we want. It's it's uh, there's still a fear of stigma, a hundred percent is a fear of stigma. Well, there is there is stigma. So the fear makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Unfortunately, that's true. Very, very true. Yeah. Yeah. At the same time, I mean, it's really exciting because, I mean, I, I think there's so, so, so far left to go. But at the same time, this is probably the first time in human history where we're having discussions like these in a more public way than ever before. And I just think about it and... I'm blown away at the progress that's been made and the, yeah, just how much the landscape is really changing. Um, and that's just on one level. And on, on another level, it's also like as a, a woman and um, I just think about, you know, for most of human history, you and I couldn't have had this conversation. <laughs> Period. Right. And- I, you know, I, I come from a, I come from a culture also where having this conversation and making this wide open, it's like, there is, it's still, it is, the stigma's there. You know, we still, it's not something that, that there's still things about me that I can't openly express because I come from, I guess, the traditional mindset where these are not things that should ever been, be expressed. Yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, it, it. Yeah, I mean, there's cultures in which I remember when I I had cancer when I was younger and there were relatives I had who said, you know, you shouldn't, you should keep it a secret because people might not want to date you or whatever it is. And we forget how, how recently, you know, especially for women, it's like you were considered, you're kind of like cattle. (laughs) It's like, what? what can you be traded for? <laughs> and um, you needed to come from good stock, you know? And if you had some kind of issue, which 99.9% of us do, you know, that could potentially affect your your breeding status in the eyes of the society. And so it's like, you know, sometimes I really, I, I get really frustrated because there's just so much further to go. But then other times I'm just like, wow, you know, if I had been born in any other time in human history, I couldn't do even a fraction of what I'm doing. And and that's incredible. Um, I mean, you have a podcast that somebody living in, somebody living in like literally Timbuktu <laughs> could stumble across and listen to and, and perhaps be changed by. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, yeah, and, and I appreciate the platform. I mean, you're creating a voice for so many people and for yourself and, and allowing that. Um, let me let me let me shift into the I guess you're you're obviously doing this and it's it's like just talking about it is is self care. But tell me a little bit about like what you're doing in that in that realm. Yeah, and self care. Um, I would say the number one thing that I'm always amazed is really overlooked and not given enough um, enough airtime, um, especially in light of how effective it is. Like I think it's 
one of the more effective things I've ever done, and it's one of the least talked about, and so I continue to marvel that, is um, I think everyone should become aware of reparenting. If they, if they aren't already, then they should. And essentially, um, yeah, it's the ability to give yourself the level of love and care that you may not have had or wanted uh, when you were younger. A lot of our our hurt and pain and, and trauma, you know, unfortunately it does start from childhood. And again, we talked about how this is really the first time in human history that we're becoming more trauma aware. And as we do, we're aware of the, just some of the inadequacies and 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 the tr the trauma that's been passed down from generations. And so reparenting, to be able to gift yourself the type of love that you may not have been able to receive is one of the most powerful things ever. And so one of the things, for instance, you know, my self-talk initially with depression, it went a lot like this. Um, it was, uh, God, you're so lazy. You're such an idiot. You're just whiny and like to complain. Nothing's actually wrong with you. You're just... Yeah, I mean, it was essentially a repeat of variations of that. Nothing's actually wrong. You're just choosing to be lazy and whiny instead of, um, instead of you know, fixing it or stopping being depressed. And that's just incredibly harsh and cruel. I would never say that to another human being. Um, and so reparenting, it's what what you can do, what's one thing that makes it easier, sometimes it can be hard to give compassion to our adult selves or our current selves. Um, I mean, I've worked on this, like I said, it's a skill you can grow so I can do it now, but the beginning I would imagine myself as a, as a child, um, the age that came up for me a lot was um, around two and three and then five and six, those ages for some reason felt very poignant. And I would imagine myself as that small child and allow myself to feel whatever I was feeling. So, you know, with depression, obviously incredible sadness. And I would talk to myself the way I would talk to that little child version of me. So I wouldn't tell that child, oh, you're lazy, you're stupid, get over it. I would tell that child, like, you know, come here, let me hold you. I'm so sorry you feel that way. And I love you so much. And so I really, I, I reparent myself. I talk to myself the way that I wish I had been spoken to and sometimes even hug myself. Um, and it's just an incredibly, incredibly powerful tool that, like I said, is I don't understand why it's not more utilized or more talked about in the field. So that's one thing. Um, I also, I, ha I think somatic practice is incredibly important. I think particularly in the West, we really overvalue our intellect and we really undervalue our heart and our body. And, you know, trauma and hurt and pain, these aren't just intellectual things. These are things that our body stores. And so having a practice where you can acknowledge what's showing up non-judgmentally and allow it to move through your body. So I try to dance most days. I'll, um, 
I'll kind of identify the main three emotions that I'm experiencing and I'll put on a little soundtrack that's representative of that. So let's say my, um, and I'll kind of try to create a, a musical narrative to it. So let's say I'm feeling like grief and rage and, and, and joy. Um, and I'll, I'll usually kind of try to leave on the note of, of joy or, or, you know, or kind of orient things towards that direction. But, um, but yeah, I'll just dance it out. I'll, I'll go kind of, go kind of crazy and it's amazing and, and beautiful and really, really fun. And it's like, you can really feel things getting physically unstuck, um, which is really great. Um, gosh, there's so many things I do. I, I, I think meditation is really, really critical, but not for the reasons that we're kind of told. I think that, you know, we hear about meditation a lot and, oh, you should meditate and, oh, it's so good for you and oh these successful people do it and it allows them to focus and this and that but I feel like the part of meditation that we don't hear enough about is that you know our society ironically what we call civilization is a process of disconnecting people from themselves um we are supposed to work, you know, I mean, I don't even, I think it's funny that we even call full-time 40 hours a week. I don't know any professionals that work 40 hours a week. It's, it's understood to be expected that full-time means you're available and on call like 50, 60 hours a week minimum. And so you're busy all the time. You're working all the time. When you're not working, you're distracted and there's lights and sounds and flashy objects and watch this and scroll that and um, just a million things sort of vying for your attention and we become really disconnected from ourselves. We don't actually know what it is we think and feel, which, which makes a lot of sense. Like if you want to, because most people are miserable and, and they just kind of settle for that. You know, most people work jobs that they don't give a shit about. <laughs> they, um, yeah, they're working for somebody else, making somebody else a lot of money. Um, most of them aren't getting by that well, or if they are just disproportionately not well compared to, you know, the, the owners of the business. And, and if people started to wake up from that, they'd be like, Hey, I don't want to work my whole life. And then, and then, you know, work until I die essentially. And so, yeah, I think people, we just kind of shut people off from themselves and meditation. It's an opportunity to, connect to yourself and to discover what, who you really are and what you really think and feel when you're not getting kind of constant input and bombarded from the outside world of, you know, buy this, do that, um, live this kind of life, buy this beauty product, look this way. Um, it's very easy to, to lose ourselves in, in the nonstop, just barrage of everything. And, so, so it's funny, my relationship with meditation has evolved so much. Like first I, like a lot of people, I used it as a tool just to like, oh, it's so, I hear it's so good for you. And it helps like all these 
you know, Warren Buffett does it and, and it helps him constantly, you know, whatever. And then I did it. It's like, wow, I'm, I'm understanding what it's like to be me. And, um, that is invaluable. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. I, I tried to meditate for a while and it didn't work for me. And I don't really, I, I did it because everybody, you know, everybody's like, oh, it makes you feel better. For me, I found that I think my, it's interesting, my competitive space is is the mindfulness side of things. Uh, my perfume, you know, for self-care, I literally think that where I'm going is literally like it's using sense to anchor yourself in the present and to bring you to a le- an element of mindfulness and versus like, you know, perfume for wearing and being the, getting the external validation from somebody who's like, oh, you smell good. No, it's about getting the internal, uh, using that as, as a grounding uh, tool so that you can feel like you are present and you have the experience of all five senses. It's a different mentality. But, you know, meditation, it can come in many forms. And I think what you're describing is a form of meditation, right? I mean, it's like some of my best meditations are just holding a cup of warm coffee in the morning and just breathing it in. And I feel so present and like the feeling of like the warmth of the cup in my hand and meditation can just be slowing down and becoming really sensitive and aware. Um, and so it's, you know, it's not just like sitting there on a cushion looking like a yogi with your arm, you know, in full Lotus with your arms crossed. And again, I think that's one of these, these misnomers that we have. Um, and these like, just these distorted versions that we present to the world of like yoga people being like these, these gorgeous feathery people on beaches or, or a monk in a studio. It's like, you know, meditation can be art. It can be going for a walk. It can be um, allowing yourself to be really immersed in, in something that feels good to you. you can be taking a bath. I mean, sounds like you have a really beautiful, yeah, yeah, yeah. I want I want to end with what I call the common sense question. If you can give an earlier version of yourself a piece of advice, what would you tell her? <laughs> yeah. Um, have more fun. <laughs> um, take yourself less seriously. Uh, get the stick out of your ass. Um, yeah, uh, don't, yeah, everyone's going to have an opinion about you and you need to reconcile yourself to not giving a shit. Um, and there's just so many variations of what life can be. And I think that I never could have imagined I, I'd be here and I just grew up with this very, very linear understanding of, you know, do this, have this kind of job, get married there. And there are certain traditional things that I really want and desire. Like I would love to be married. I'd love to have kids, but there are other things that it's so clear that, a you know, a traditional job and um, how much I need, I am somebody who, absolutely needs to live in integrity with 
who and what I am and who and what I am is pretty off the beaten track and owning that and not settling for these pre-circumscribed social narratives and cues um, and just doing what calls you and fulfills your heart um, that's that's really everything so yeah 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 awesome all right cool where can we tell people to f- where where can people find you so i can be found at my website it's www.abeautifulmess.org so .org and uh, definitely don't go to .com so that's a different site you'll although you'll learn about crafting so that can be fun i also i write on medium i have a blog there um, and i'm going to be writing more can also find me Sasha Alex Raskin on LinkedIn. Um, my website that I directed you to it has a lot of ways to contact me: my phone number, my email. Um, it has my Facebook group that I run that is private and confidential. Um, so yeah, lots of ways through through there. Awesome, awesome. Okay, cool. All right. Well, thank you so much, Sasha. This has really been awesome, and I hope I hope it's. Everybody realizes there's no shame in being honest about your struggles. I think the more you do it, the more relatable you are and the more approachable you are. And people want to hear it. People do want to hear it. They come to you and they're like, wow, you shared something that's like, it shouldn't be taboo to talk about. There's no reason to be afraid of sharing this history of who you are, because it literally, there is not a single person who's ever had a smooth sailing, completely like amazing life. And I love how some people do have that attitude that nothing's ever gone through. They've never gone through anything. Everybody has dealt with, you know, the BS in their lives. They've they've all gone through their own struggles and turmoil and hardships and all the like. And it's really important to feel that it's that not to not be afraid of talking about, you know, real stories. Yeah. Um, so thank you. Thank you for, for, I hope you, I hope you empowered others to, to want to talk and share. Yeah. You're creating, which is amazing and the opportunity to do that. So thank you so much. I'm really glad I could be here. Thank you all again for tuning in. This is your host, Tamar Weinberg of the Common Sense Podcast. Till next time, 